You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Yes, and here I am, Alfresco. It's a little bit too hot to be inside. Alfredo. And, uh, Alfredo. Yeah, that's what, isn't that with uh, with uh, cheese sauce on it? Yeah, I want cheese sauce. Yeah, yeah. al dente. Yeah, and I could go for that. No, um, I apologize in advance because Wrigley is very vocal today. He's been neglected today. He has not had his entire day with me like he normally has. Where he now you left, you left him at the office while you went to go record your weekly CBC gig. I abandoned him alone. You weren't at the office to to spend time with him and make him forget that I wasn't even there. I apologize. Yeah. I was out in Richmond working. He's all working hard. Don't worry. <laughs> He's mad at us both. We're betrayed. Well, there you go. So he can bark during the podcast. We'll all have to live with it. Yes. He's taking his anger out on people who walk by my fence. There you go. Wait, so much driving law news this week and unusual connections to driving law. So the first connection to driving law is very interesting. I'm sure you, like everybody else in British Columbia, got an Amber Alert yesterday afternoon and then again last night yeah and monitoring it since um and i'm a little surprised that they haven't located this um like 2008 dodge four-door truck pulling a horse trailer or a travel trailer but they do have mechanisms to identify those vehicles right like you know and this is what I wanted to talk about. How does driving law intersect when you have like an abduction or an amber alert or a silver alert or, you know, these these other type of high risk situations? What role does driving law play? And it does play a role, Paul. I'm sure it does. Many different roles that I can think of, because when people are um, on the run, they're in their cars or trucks. Typically. Yes. So tell me, what's your angle? Well, I figure that there are a couple ways that the police are using existing resources that relate to driving investigations to try and track down this this vehicle and this trailer, which I, I'm pretty sure what I'm gleaning from the news stories is that the trailer doesn't belong to the woman who's accused of abducting her children. The trailer actually belongs to a parent or a boyfriend. and. One thing that can be done is the ALPR system. We haven't talked a lot about ALPR on the pod. Well, we probably should. So we have automatic license plate recognition in BC. Um, we've had it for a while. Uh, when uh, it sort of became public that we had it, we learned that the uh, Victoria police were using it for all sorts of, uh, of incorrect things. It was back when Jamie Graham was still the chief. They were downloading information. They were monitoring where people went. They had all of the information anytime they saw a car 
Um, so these are devices that are mounted in police cars that scan license plates. Mm-hmm. And they can scan thousands and thousands per hour. And the idea is to flag vehicles that should be pulled over for investigation, potentially of uh, drivers who are driving while prohibited or disqualified. Uh, but of course, you could also, what's that? Uninsured drivers, people without sure. license expired, um, lots of different things. And, you know, lots of police officers will say that they're their system is flagging like crazy when they're parked on the highway um, and they can't even pull over all the cars. But of course you could program it to look for the license plate of this truck and, and trailer. Yeah. So here's what I learned because I did a constitutional challenge many years ago to uh, the use of ALPR and the ALPR data. I said that it was an unreasonable search and seizure to be randomly scanning license plates and then looking those license plates up um i lost it i lost the challenge in fact though i did not feel like i was completely off base in bringing the challenge because turns out alan gold the guy who edits the criminal code also brought the same challenge in ontario so well when it came out uh, and Jamie Graham um, admitted that the Victoria police had been doing this. Everybody was shocked, and he seemed to think yeah. that it was just fine. Um, very, very, very police statey. Um, the total 1984 feeling. Um, yeah. And I and after that, they said they would delete the data at the end of the day, but they were still collecting the data, mm-hmm. not I've... just using it to to flight plates, right? No, and I've never encountered a person who thinks that ALPR is just fine. The police should be allowed to do this. Uh, everybody finds it a shocking invasion into people's privacy and yeah. a right not to be interfered with by the state. But what I learned in this constitutional challenge and the evidence that was led by the government in, in defense of this is that the ALPR data, um, the, the information that's put into the database, is put in there at the beginning of every day. But like 7 a.m. every morning, ICBC will re-upload a list of prohibited drivers, drivers who are due to be served a driving prohibition, um, individuals who have expired insurance, expired licenses, and people using CPIC databases that have active warrant and any Amber Alert data. So Ah. it... PR is currently being used in British Columbia to try and investigate this Amber Alert. Yeah. And that's why the police are also updating us with the second Amber Alert last night, where the only update was a little bit more vehicle information. That's why it's being updated so quickly and why we got two Amber Alerts in a day, because they wanted the updated information in the ALPR system so that this person could be found. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I happen to know um, through contacts that I can't reveal that there are people who are connected to the uh, protests in Ottawa and um, anti-vax movement and others who have campgrounds um, around the province where they are hiding people who have warrants hiding people who are under investigation for various different offenses. 
Um, and one wonders if, uh, if these people have managed to find somebody along that line, because often enough we've seen the people who don't, who, who gravitate to this, the sovereign citizen movement and things like that are people who don't like the decisions the courts have made with respect to their, um, custody and access arrangements. And so I'm a little suspicious that that is where, uh, ultimately they will find, uh, this woman and the children. Uh, but of course it's summertime in BC. Are you saying that our inadequately funded and resourced family law system that leaves people in the lurch that is, doesn't give people enough access to judicial resources and doesn't have enough legal age, legal aid coverage? Is a pipeline to extremism? Actually, I would say that it is. Um, in fact, that's a very quick and easy line to draw. Um, now, it, it may it the, uh, the a lot of the people in the sov sovereign citizen, you know, uh, uh, movement um, over the last fifteen years got involved in that because they were not happy about. Um, having to pay child support. And then when the clamps downs came, their licenses suspended and things like that, you know, they, they've got an angry situation with their ex and they don't really want to recognize the authority of the state. I'm sorry about the noise in the background. It looks like, sounds like there's a party going on the street. Um, this is what happens when I go, uh, when I go al dente or, uh, what's the, what's the one with cheese? Anyway. El Prano. Alfredo, um, podcast Alfredo. So, uh, largely that has been the case, like the, the, the sort of, uh, people who reject the authority of the government often are in situations. They're not necessarily people who you'd want to be married to and in a, a domestic, um, conflict with and having to deal with that matter in court. But, uh, these are the people who are really not great problem solvers and then persuade themselves that, um, they need to live outside of any government control. And so, yes, it is a pipeline to that. That's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, they're looking for, if you look at the anti-trans movement, you can see a lot of the same language that was used by people who, um, uh, uh, uh opposed, um, uh, the, um, opposed the basically the end of slavery in the u.s and then opposed everything that has existed to try and enhance um uh, greater equality with respect to racial inequality in the u.s a lot of the same language used and a lot of the same language used here by the soft citizen movement uh and they just find easy traction and i think it often does start with family law disputes Wow. Weirdly, we have taken this podcast from driving law to Amber Alerts to ALPR to family law to sovereign citizens. And now I think we've reached the natural end of this. I can't I can't transition this. <laughs> well, uh, I think I could transition it probably many ways. I'm sorry I'm not more eloquent. I had a long, long day and I'm really tired, but this is uh, something that's concerned me for a long period of time. Um, and, uh, I was contacted by somebody years ago, a friend of mine who 
you know, when this soft citizen thing was coming and, and sent me this and this person happened to be going through a custody battle. And I wrote back and, you know, laid it all out. This was sent as a email or a text message to me. Um, and this is where they get people when they're vulnerable. Uh, you know, they, they are, are dealing with the situation of, a of, a argument over custody or access or money, uh, after the family breaks up and people are really, really vulnerable in those circumstances. And, you know, they find this stuff on the internet and they get attracted to it. And unfortunately, you know, they, the internet allows them to find each other. And so I would, uh, bet dollars to donuts that these people are camping in one of these locations that, uh, um, that, that, uh, are sympathetic to those, those viewpoints. Um, how do we transition from that to what do you want to talk about next? I don't know. I was going to talk uh, about the, the pipeline of police in, in Surrey, the policing issues in Surrey to what does this have to do with the superintendent of motor vehicles? Okay. So the civil rights movement in the U S where I ended does not transition. That's why I said we have we have smooth transition on topics here. But I did think would do a disservice because we've mentioned it a lot before, and it's not directly driving law related, but it is driving law adjacent. Um, Surrey finally has a not so final, probably final decision from the minister Mike Farnworth, who was a previous guest on this podcast on the Surrey police transition, and he has said Surrey has not proven that they can do what they need to do to police Surrey with the RCMP, so the Surrey police force is the way to go. And Brenda Log has yet to release a statement. But the big question on everybody's minds is, what legal remedies does she have? Well, you should have her on the podcast. You should contact her. You've had David Eby, you've had uh, Mike Farnworth. Been a while since you've had guests. Maybe it's time to have Brenda Locke on to see if uh, I feel like considered what her might not want to come on after I said on CBC today that uh, my legal advice to her, if she called me for a judicial review of this decision, would be to let it go. Well, here's the actually that was an interesting thing. I thought about the same thing. I only heard a portion of your CBC program today. I didn't hear that, <laughs> but I did um, was thinking about it. What would I say? as a lawyer to Brenda Locke, you know, you can phone a big law firm and you can pay them $6,800 or $26,000 and they will give you a legal opinion on this. Um, and the legal opinion on this might lead you to conclude that, you know, yeah, okay, you can do it. Right. And there's something you can argue. Um, but it wouldn't really take into account the political considerations here. You know, I, I think at this point, like she can say she's exhausted all reasonable efforts to try and do what she was elected to do, which that was her primary mandate was to keep the RCMP in Surrey. Um, yeah. And, and then say, okay, all right, you know, we, we tried the provincial government stopped us. This was the process. Uh, you know, we did everything we could, the ball was rolling and you know, we couldn't persuade the provincial government to do what we wanted, despite the fact that we tried. Should we go any further on this? You know, at some point we have to, we have to call it quits and, and transition as we must. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that, except 
to the extent that the the idea that she shouldn't pursue legal remedies when she has been advancing this narrative of gender-based discrimination and bullying. And I don't know what evidence exists for that. Obviously, you know, there's been the things that the public has been privy to, the things yeah. that are FOIable that have been FOI'd and released in the meantime, which is very, very little, and the things that have been subject to, like, David Eby having to swear to the confidentiality of certain information. Um, you know, it's all policing-based, so it's security risks, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of it is never going to be public. But for the purposes of a judicial review, like, you can have adequate sealing in place and, and the record can still be reviewed by a BC Supreme Court judge. If there was interference in a way that was discriminatory, was infringing the charter was just manifestly unfair that would be a basis for a remedy on judicial review i i suppose there could be um and you know i'm reluctant to see something like that proceed on that basis oh, oh um, obviously so many different reasons i like mike um <laughs> He's a nice guy. I'm, I'm sure Brenda is a, a lovely person. Um, the uh, I, you know, I know of the allegation that she made um, with respect to that. I I find it, I find it troubling um, because I know Mike. Um, I know that those sorts of allegations tend to be believed, maybe even believed by the court, even if they are, you know. Uh, uh, an issue of feelings and not so much substance I mean, that's um, because there's a right is yeah. is you can perceive that you are being bullied even if you're not exactly especially when you're in a position of a power disadvantage and just because somebody has power as a natural consequence of their office and they wield that power in a lawful way doesn't make it bullying even though it may feel like you're being bullied and i'm not trying to discredit what brenda Locke said because again i haven't seen the evidence um yeah. and i know both of them and i like both of them and i want to believe both of them and so i will not pass judgment but i i i do think that there is an interesting angle there and it's something that is really like not explored a lot in judicial review in british columbia which is sort of the role that these power imbalances and quote-unquote government bullying not individual bullying but government bullying um has to play in the reasonableness of decisions well as you and i know um when it comes down to these judicial reviews uh the house always wins in the sense that the government always sort of gets the benefit of the doubt that they're doing things correctly. The government always gets the um, def the, the de deferred to, um, and um, you know all they have to do is point at some fact in their decision. And after that, it, I mean, in a case like this, it's a it, very largely an exercise of discretion. And so, 
you know, are you going to fetter that discretion? How are you going to fetter that discretion? I don't think, I mean, there are many cases and especially a case where, you know, you're saying as I, as I understand it, that if you could say that there was some sort of identifiable bullying that impacted the decision making, uh, of it, uh, that that would be a, a grounds for review that potentially could send it back again. It would just be another decision, right? It would be sent back for a new decision. Yeah. Um, well, that's the, I, I just don't, I just don't think the court is capable. The court lacks the tools to make those findings and the court lacks the tools many times to make the findings that the courts end up making. And, you know, you and I look at, at, at IRP judicial reviews and the courts have come up with these methods of, for us as lawyers and the tribunal adjudicators to adjudicate that, you know, in my mind are ridiculous. Like, okay, look at the police officer's report, find in here what you can, you, you know, you can point out that undermines the credibility of the police officer and then show that that doesn't exist with the credibility of your client. <clears throat> you know, none of these things get to the truth. None of these things are, are useful fact finding, useful fact finding methods. And this is what the courts told us to do because by golly, that's what the court does. It's hard to say that this is a good way to resolve disputes. Yeah. So that actually brings me to my next point and our next topic. Okay. Which is judicial review in the context of roadside prohibitions because there was a decision released today in the case of jared kuster uh he got a prohibition for refusing to blow and after he essentially refused he he tried to blow it got an incorrect reading the officer said are you going to provide a sample or not? And he said, no, and pulled his head away. The adjudicator said that was enough evidence that he refused. Didn't matter what happened next because he didn't blow properly the first and only time. And he said no, and he was being generally not cooperative with the police throughout the investigation. So that was sufficient for the adjudicator to say the transaction was complete and he had refused to provide a sample. And so what's argued in the review hearing is that Mr. Custer led that was essentially that after the no, then he was arrested for refusing to provide a sample. Then he was told about the consequences of what would happen if he didn't blow. And he went, well, hold up. Let me try again. Yeah. And the adjudicator said, doesn't matter. Transaction complete. You said no. The book is closed. No further opportunity. Well, this is, again, um, a government decision, right? And the government makes the rules for themselves and makes the rules up as they often, it seems, as they go along. In this case, I read, uh, skimmed through it, and the first time he blew, he blew blow high. Yeah. Now, most people, when they're trying to blow... Um, if they are trying to obstruct the process, will blow very lightly. They might, you know, blow out the side of their mouth. They might 
know, barely blow at all. They'll ask beforehand, what if I, what if I refuse stupid things like that? It's very rarely that someone will blow too hard because they assume that they're doing it right. They assume that they're providing the evidence by blowing hard. Flow high is that you blew too hard for the, for the device to be able to, I don't know. I mean, I don't understand why it can't Which doctor a sample, but really hard to do. I don't think I've ever been able to successfully produce a flow high, even when trying. I have. I have. I, I've done it not when trying. I mean, I've done it sometimes just when I'm trying to demonstrate the device to somebody and I'm impatient. But if you don't know the device, I mean, I've used it. How many times do you think I've used it? You know, 3,000 times. If you don't know the device, then you don't know that you've got to maintain this stable, not too hard blow for a certain period of time if everything's working properly. Um, but just the fact that he blew flow high tells me, okay, you know, he wasn't trying to hide his blood alcohol concentration. He might have been a jerk. You know, it could have been all sorts of other things. But he wasn't trying to hide his blood alcohol concentration. Then after that, there's this no. Yeah. And then there's this discussion of what the consequences are. And then the, but the adjudicator just assumes that at that no, that's it, which is ridiculous, but not inconsistent with the reasoning that we see. Interesting. This is the second decision that exists where, at least on judicial review, published decisions where adjudicators have said that, like, once the decision to go by IRP was made by the officer, the decision to impose the consequences made, that it doesn't matter what happened after that decision. Like there's um, my friend Jace did a case called Jack, where Mr. Jack blew a third time and then he blew a warn and the officer served a 90 day prohibition. And the adjudicator's like, hey, it doesn't matter because the third attempt doesn't count because you're only entitled to two. So I can ignore the third. And no, I didn't see that. <laughs> on both occasions, the, the court has basically had to say, just because you don't like the implications of this evidence doesn't mean that you can ignore it. I mean, even in, in Vandenbroek, where the BC Supreme Court quotes from Aldous Huxley, they say, facts do not cease to exist simply because they're ignored. That's what you have here. And and. Well superintendent their lawyers tried to argue in this case this this nonsensical position so there's two cases that have come before in dealing with cases where there's been like a, a no i'm not going to blow followed or a, an attempt to blow that wasn't successful followed by an arrest for failure or refusal and then a hey wait let me try again kular and martin i refer to them all the time like yeah. multiple times a week and the superintendent tried to say well, those cases are distinguishable because Kular was a case where he just said no, um, and he never he never tried to blow. It it was like, um, uh, uh it was like uh, there's a difference between denial cases and deemed refusal cases where somebody tries and they're unsuccessful and ask for other opportunity. And of course, like. No, there's no meaningful distinction between those two things. The point is, in both of those cases, that it's important to consider evidentiary considerations pertaining to what occurred after an apparent denial, whether it oral, deemed, or communicated in some other fashion. It doesn't matter how a person 
allegedly refuses to blow. If there is relevant evidence to that question of the mens rea component of the refusal that happens after, it's part of the totality of circumstances that are before the adjudicator that have to be taken into account. Yes, I agree. And but, the you know. 19 of this recent case, that specifically the following evidence should have been considered by the delegate. One, if and when the police advised the respondent that he would lose his license. And two, if and when, and if so, why, the respondent wished to provide a further sample after he initially said no. Well, the problem with all of this, in my mind, is the thing that I've talked about with you before. I don't know if we ever discussed it on the podcast. And that is this idea that you're going to issue an IRP to somebody after you've made a criminal code demand. So it's a criminal code demand with criminal code consequences. Um, and the moment that you start telling people consequences that are outside of the criminal code, you're no longer making it a criminal code demand. And I know we got some um, freedom of information disclosure where some of the officers in the impaired driving advisory committee had realized, oh my goodness, we have a problem here the moment we start telling people IRP consequences. Because the moment you start telling them that, you're incentivizing, refusing. That's the Mastolita case out of the, um, out of Ontario. And so we have the problem with the demand. And then in this case, of course, they start telling him the consequences. This is, I mean, there's a different issue with this case. You can't just cut it off at the moment that the person says no, if there's material information that comes after the fact. Back to Aldous Huxley. But the problem that they've got is the moment they start telling people consequences, they're taking it outside of the of the context of the criminal code demand, making it no longer a criminal code demand, and incentivizing a refusal. And you're sitting there at the roadside, and you don't get a right to counsel because your right to counsel is suspended. The gravamen of the offense is your engagement with the police and your response to the police making this demand to you or whatever, because it's no longer a demand once they start telling you different consequences than the criminal code. Honestly, I don't know how you can reasonably react in those circumstances. And you and I sat in court back in about, I guess it was 2011, and we watched the government lawyers arguing about the validity of the IRP scheme. And the judge asked them, you know, shouldn't you be writing it so there's a an IRP demand? Because how can you be saying this is a criminal code demand and then, you know, threatening people with an IRP consequence if they refuse? And the lawyer for the government said, no, no, we can fully rely on the on the criminal code demand. We don't need to write our own demand. And the point here is that we're not making the decision with respect to whether or not it is an immediate roadside prohibition until after everything has taken place. So the refusal is complete or the sample has been obtained. And these things do not work together. They are not harmonious. And the judge was right to pick that out. They're, I mean, like, they're quite 
unharmonious. I I mean, is you consider guilty until you prove your innocence versus innocent until the crown proves you guilty. You consider immediate consequences versus a presumption of innocence in a trial that's going to be six to nine months in the future. Exactly. You consider immediate consequences versus charge approval standard. Well, and you think about like the de- the demand, the ASC demand is a very specific demand. It's a pain in the ass. People are getting so noisy over here. Um, it's a pain in the ass in that it's very difficult for people to understand. It's like spoken, written, and uh, given to people in legalese that they're not going to understand. Often at the roadside, many people will, you know, put it together by the context. Um, you and I actually talked about this earlier today, uh, not in relation to this case. Um, but people are not going to necessarily understand that demand. Here at my gate as I walk into the backyard. People are not necessarily going to understand that demand. And it is a complex thing to understand. And the reason that we have this demand that is a specific demand, you know, on a card that police officers must read is because that is assumed to comply with the requirements of the criminal code for notification. When you, as an individual, again, the gravamen of the offense is your response to the, per- to the police officer speaking. And the moment that you start departing from that and saying something different as a police officer, all you're doing is maybe incentivizing a person to refuse muddying the waters in circumstances where you don't get a right to counsel. And to me, it's just wrong. Like it it just is wrong. I don't know how a person can reasonably respond. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, so judicial review kind of so because, because of the point I was trying to make is even though this seems like such a great victory, like this person gets to go back and get a brand new hearing with the superintendent of motor vehicles. It's just a new hearing. It's just a new hearing. And the outcome can and likely will still be the same. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I, it's frustrating for me because we look at the um, we look at the cases and we look at those first few decisions where the concern was that um, that the cases were being reverse engineered to uphold the prohibitions. And the court has seen it, right? Like, you know, the very first judge figured it out. Um, and those decisions were overturned at the Court of Appeal. And, and it was very clear what was going on. You know, it was very clear what was going on. And we still see it over a decade later. It's improved. Uh, it's improved because of successful judicial reviews, but every unsuccessful judicial review emboldens the government to use the tribunal as their policy tribunal, I guess. Well, Paul, that means that there is really only one thing to do. What's that? That's to just... Florida man it. Exactly. It's time well, for the sounds, driver. It sounds, it sounds like my neighbors here are Florida manning it. 
out wow. there and listen to the noise. So, like the, the amount that they've had to consume on I, a Thursday I, night. I tried to go outside. Yeah. My patio so that Wrigley would stop barking and, and being upset at being alone outside. And uh, uh, there were rats scurrying around under the patio and I could hear them. And then I got scared and came inside. Underneath your, your deck? Yeah. Yeah, I could okay. hear them under the turf that's under the deck. Oh, okay. All right. Let's talk about the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, Cross-Examination the Pinpoint Method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And not the rats that scared me into my house. <laughs> no. Area, he could be able to take care of those rats. Uh, Florida situation. There are photos online. They're not as salacious as the title of the article might make you think, but this is a Florida man who was involved, a 22-year-old guy involved in a high-speed chase after a hit-and-run uh, down a Port Orange highway. He hit multiple vehicles, then uh, drove onto the running track of a high school. Or not elementary school. Um, Hope there's no kids there. He was not just by regular Florida police, but a fish and wildlife officer who then speeds over to catch up to this vehicle and is able to catch him because he gets stuck by a concrete barrier. Uh, he and the driver and the passenger were were ordered to exit the vehicle. They refused to do so, and. When the police went to physically remove these individuals from the vehicle, the driver was only wearing socks and what is described in the article as a small, bright-colored covering around his waist. And if you if you look at the stills from the body cam footage, this guy's like basically got a scarf that he's fashioned into a diaper. That was how we did it in the eighties. There are ladies on, on a body cam footage going on, but naked. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. That sounds like just an ordinary Tuesday in Florida. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, the yeah. DUI Lawyers Association is putting on a seminar in Florida in April 2024. And yeah. uh, my, my great hope and uh, push point that I'm taking with the organization as the vice president of events and education is that the entire agenda should be Florida man-themed. Why not? You know, there's um, these two big DUI uh, organization, lawyer organizations in the States, and we're members of both and quite involved in the DUI DLA. And they're always looking for pithy, funny things uh, to attract people. They have great, great seminars uh, at the DUI DLA, and I've been to some pretty good ones at the other organization too. Um but yeah, why not go full Florida? Right. The only thing is, who wants to go to Florida with Ron DeSantis and power? Hey, there's going to be nothing to eat soon. B, there'll be, you know, nobody to take care of your, clean your room. Maybe by 2024, he'll be gone. I don't know. Hope so. Hope he's done. One can only hope. But in the meantime, 
Florida man in Supreme. And that's our podcast. Hey, good podcast. I'm uh, sorry it probably ran long because I was pontificating. Were uh, and you can't see me when we're on Zoom for me to give you the uh, the proverbial hook. <laughs> yeah, and uh, signals stop talking. You talk too much. People don't people don't want to listen to you anymore, Doroshenko. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. <laughs>